It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Sally Sharif, and today we are discussing Revolution and Dictatorship, the Violent Origins of Durable Authoritarianism by Stephen Levitsky and Luke and Wei, which was published by Princeton University Press in 2022. Luke and Wei is a professor of political science at the University of Toronto, where he co-directs the Petro Yasek program for the study of Ukraine. Luke, and thank you for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Um, Stephen Levitsky, the book's other author, is the David Rockefeller Professor of Latin American Studies and Professor of Government at Harvard University. Uh, The previous book by both authors is Competitive Authoritarianism, Hybrid Regimes After the Cold War, published by Cambridge University Press in 2010. All right. Uh, Lucan, your work has been very influential, and I would say it's part of the comparative politics canon. A lot of us uh, were exposed to your work at a tender age in grad school, uh, if not before then. And probably most of us have um, had your works on our comprehensive exams list. Um, in the short time that I have with you, I want to ask questions about your recent book, obviously. And I want to learn a little more about you, um, your collaboration with Stephen Levitsky, and how you became such influential figures in uh, political science. A lot of our listeners are um, graduate students or junior scholars, so we try to allow everyone uh, to have a peek behind the curtain of research, so to say. I also want to ask you questions that might interest non-political scientists, like historians, anthropologists, sociologists, and people who are generally interested in politics and want to read the book to understand the the contemporary geopolitics of some of the countries that you study, like uh, China, Russia, Iran, Cuba, Bolivia, and others. Right, so that's a lot. I hope you're ready. Let's start with uh, the idea of the book. Obviously, uh, you've dedicated the bulk of your career to explaining the durability of authoritarian regimes. Where did the idea for this specific book come from? Uh, What happened for you to say, let's write a book about revolutions and dictatorships? So um, this book has come out of almost nearly a a 30-year collaboration with my co-author, Stephen Levitsky. We met um, in graduate school. I I'm a specialist in post-communist politics, and I decided to take a course in Latin American politics um, with Professor Ruth Collier um, at Berkeley in the 1990s, and we became close then. We we started off by, we wrote a paper that was published in Comparative Politics um, comparing um, Poland and Argentina, sort of labor-backed adjustments back in 1998. And um, specifically, this book came out of our first book together, which was Competitive Authoritarianism, in which we found that uh, competitive authoritarian autocracies, 
kind of authoritarian regimes that emerged out of violent struggle um, tended to be much more durable. So we developed this idea, kind of this initial kind of seed of the idea, and then we sort of really kind of transformed it into something much more historical, you know, focusing on these uh, set of social revolutions that sort of, um, you know, not, you know, today the sort of term revolution can refer to everything from Ukraine after the Orange Revolution or the Arab Spring, where you just simply have protests that emerge and autocracies fall. Um, the kind of revolutions we're talking about in this book are uh, much more sort of theta scotchpole type revolutions in which um, like the Soviet Union or China in 1949 and the like that involve both violence, but also serious attempts at radical social transformation. Um, so yeah, so those are the kind of revolutions we're talking about. Great. So you sort of started what I wanted to ask next, which is uh, the two most important concepts in the book, um, revolution and dictatorship. Uh, let's start with revolution. Um, how do you define uh, revolution in this book? So basically, it's a you know these are cases of irregular transfer of power, you know, brought about by mass protests, uh, but involve two um, phenomena that you don't often see in other revolutions. One is which is sort of the the breakdown of state authority um, and the creation of a new army. Uh, so this is, uh, you know, something you don't normally see. For example, in the Arab Spring, you know, you, you had a kind of political revolution, but you didn't, the army very much remained intact. The second uh, phenomenon that you don't see typically in most other political revolutions is a serious effort to, to radically transform the social structure. Um, this can mean sort of uh, the, the abolition of private property as in sort of communist revolutions. It also can refer to sort of uh, kind of introduction of Sharia law and other sort of, you know, religious restrictions as in, as in Iran or Afghanistan under the Taliban. Right. Um, there's a rigid line in political science between revolution and civil war. Uh, but we know few, if any, revolutions are completely nonviolent. Um, some of the cases that you code as revolution, like Ethiopia in 1991 or Afghanistan in 1996 that you just mentioned are cases that I code in my work as rebel victories following civil war. Um, can you situate revolutions for us within the broader framework of conflict and sustained violence? So we actually don't code Ethiopia in 1991 as a social revolution. That was, you know, I think, you know, it did, you know, there was obviously uh, the regime came to power via violence, but um, there wasn't a, we, we only code cases that made a serious effort at radical social transformation. So Ethiopia in 1991 is something we call a sort of Marxist orphan. <laughs> These were cases led by sort of Marxist students who kind of, kind of during the Cold War, these movements formed during the Cold War. Um, but when they came to power, they, it was after the fall of communism. So they didn't actually engage in radical social transformation. Um, the Taliban, you know, 1996 is quite different in the sense that uh, the Taliban obviously engaged in quite radical efforts to sort of impose Sharia law. Um, and that is for us a social revolution. Right. Um, so the other important concept in the book, which is also in the title, is dictatorship. Um, how do you define uh, dictatorship and how does this, uh, how does your definition of dictatorship relate to the totalitarian versus authoritarian dichotomy? that Juan Lins offers in his 1975 book? So um, 
I've never, to be honest, really sort of completely understood his distinction. Um, I mean, to be, you know, not to sort of cast uh, aspersions on, you know, Juan Linz's wonderful work and his uh, wonderful impact on the field. Um, I mean, our definition of dictatorship or authoritarianism is very much in line with, I think, what is the standard wisdom today, which is, you know, basically authoritarian regimes or dictatorships are basically anything that's not a democracy. It's a kind of very big, uh, you know, large tent definition, um, which can, you know, range from anything from sort of the types of regimes that Steve and I used to write about, which was these hybrid competitive authoritarian regimes on the one end to, you know, really totalitarian North Korean style uh, regimes on the other. And um, so most of the dictatorships that we talk about are sort of fall closer to the totalitarian end in this book, you know, uh, places like the Soviet Union and China. But so the term dictatorship, I think, is for us at least is a much broader term. Right. Um, Thank you for that explanation. Um, So um, now let's get to the book's argument. Um, I'm going to paraphrase it. Let me know if I got it wrong. Um, The book argues that um, events during a revolutionary regime's foundational period have a profound impact on its long-term trajectory. Early radicalism triggers a violent counter-revolutionary reaction uh, that is often supported by foreign powers. And this counter-revolutionary reaction is critical uh, to long-term regime durability because it creates an existential threat. Now, overcoming this threat reinforces uh, elite cohesion, encourages the development of a powerful and loyal coercive apparatus, and facilitates the destruction of rival organizations and independent centers, and, um, and then leads to durable authoritarianism. So your argument is about revolutionary state building, so the process through which the state is built, uh, which is a special form of state building, uh, and it leads to durable authoritarianism. Um, Can you elaborate on this and tell us how this argument works in practice, like maybe in the case of Russia, an ideal case, an ideal um, case of revolution? Right. So, um, you know, these are cases that... um, you know, not in all cases, but most of the cases come to power quite weak. Um, when Lenin came to power in October 1917, they barely controlled um, a few cities. The, you know, the vast majority of Russia was uh, either under no one's control or controlled by the sort of the anti-communist whites, this broad term of, of sort of counter-revolutionary forces. Um, and Lenin, rather than doing what, you know, most dictators would do, which is, you know, try to solidify their power um, you know, essentially he tried to declare a war on the most powerful global forces, you know, generally speaking, but also within Russia, the sort of landowning class and the bourgeoisie. Um, and as he had hoped, and as because from his Marxist predilections expected, there was, you know, this very intense civil war um, that, you know, he could have lost. You know, I think um, there's nothing sort of inevitable about about you know, Lenin's victory. Um, but having survived that, you know, I think it created the, the core elements of durable authoritarianism, which as you mentioned was one is there's sort of this sort of intensely cohesive political party in which, you know, unity was almost treated in sort of quasi-religious terms. Um, and, you know, uh, partly because there was sort of this intense fear of counter-revolution that the idea that if the party was in any way divided, then the sort of, <clears throat> the uh, the capitalist powers that were dominant in the world would sort of destroy the revolution. 
So in, in, in the Soviet Union, there was this concept of capitalist encirclement, uh, which was, you know, the idea that, you know, they were surrounded in a sea of, of capitalist powers and that any sort of deviation from the party line was sort of open the way for counter-revolution. The second thing which is they did was they created a very powerful, um, you know, security apparatus, uh, which, by the way, is still with us today, <laughs> um, as the Ukrainians well know, and, and in Russia, I and mean, it's sort of Putin's power is very much be, um, resting on the, the the security apparatus, which was initially created by Lenin in 1917, and that was so. You know, Lenin. It's interesting in the Russian case because ideologically, Lenin's expectation was that you know, come communism, the state would disappear. Um, but then he quickly discovered um, that you know that his actions created you know a, a brisk reaction and sort of into sort of. Uh, deal with the sort of counter-revolutionary forces, they built this very powerful security apparatus, which was deeply tied to the party and deeply loyal to the regime. Um, and finally, uh, you know, in the process of civil war, they wiped out any sort of organizations that, that were sort of not under communist party control. Um, the, the church, um, the Lenin class, the old white army, and also sort of other opposition parties like the Mensheviks and the Socialist Revolutionaries, which were at one point were allies of the Bolsheviks, but in the context of 1917 became enemies. So they really emerged, um, you know, after the Civil War in 1921 as basically the only organized force in Russia, um, you know, and, and thus, you know, kind of face almost no competitors. Right. That, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, so continuing with the book's argument, you also say that not all revolutionary regimes are durable. Um, there are two alternative uh, revolutionary trajectories that lead to less durable regimes. Uh, the first one is a radical path to early death, uh, where revolutionary attacks on powerful domes uh, domestic and international interests trigger a military conflict that destroys the regime. Can you, can you give us examples of these? Right. So I think the our idea is that, you know, by engaging in this radical behavior, which, you know, at some level might seem irrational because you're sort of you're weak, you come to power um, and you sort of make enemies. Um, there is a risk of breakdown. And, and indeed, we see uh, three of those cases, um, the Khmer Rouge in, in Cambodia, um, the, uh, the Taliban in the 1996 revolution, um, and then the Hungarian Soviet Republic, which was a very short five-month um, experiment with, uh, you know, communism in Hungary in 1919. And in each of these cases, um, you know, Hungary in 1919 is probably the most stunning case. This was uh, founded by um, Bela Kuhn, who was a communist who was actually friends with Lenin um, and had fought in the, in, you know, for the Bolshevik seizure of power in 1917 goes to Hungary to spread revolution. Um, Hungary had just lost the war in World War I, was kind of rump Hungary, and he manages, uh, because of the state breakdown, to sort of create this Hungarian Soviet Republic and immediately seeks both to sort of um, nationalize all property in the country, but also to foment revolution in neighboring Austria and Slovakia and Romania. Um, and so, and basically gets wiped out by by French-backed Romanian army almost immediately because of this sort of quite uh, kind of Manichaean or sort of radical efforts to sort of to foment revolution in in, in Central Europe. 
Um, and he basically only lasts five months. And so, you know, in this, we see a similar pattern in Cambodia in 1975 to 1978, where uh, the Khmer Rouge comes to power, invades um, Vietnam, one of the p- most powerful developing armies and in, in, armies in the developing world, and gets wiped out in 78. And then um, we have a you know somewhat similar uh, pattern in, in Afghanistan in 2001. Right. Uh, and so if if a regime, if a revolutionary regime is to become uh, authoritarian and and durably so. You need uh, three pillars. Uh, one, cohesive ruling elites. Two, a highly developed and royal coercive apparatus, as you explained in the case of Russia. And then three, the destruction of alternative bases of societal power. Which of these um, pillars is more important? And does the tripod fall without any of those three legs? Um, it's, I'm not, the question is what's more important. I, you know, I, I, we don't really come to any clear conclusions on that. I mean, I think, um, I mean, first of all, you know, I think that, you know, part, there are parts of the argument that, you know, that don't really travel very well. And these are kind of, you know, unique regimes that are uniquely powerful, um, in a sense uh, that have kind of that sort of really sort of everything as sort of a dictator in their wildest dreams would ever want, <laughs> In a durable dictatorship, um, uh, but most don't have. Um, I, I think, um, you know, I think if I were to choose, I would, you know, if I had to choose one of those pillars, I think it would probably be a loyal and, and, um, and powerful army. I mean, given the fact that historically, um, most autocracies have fallen due to coup, um, you know, these are regimes that are remarkably resilient to coup d'etat. So I think, you know, that's probably the most important factor uh, followed by sort of a cohesive ruling party, then, you know, the sort of alternatives, um, sort of in last place. Right. Um, so what happens to regimes that, um, that survive in the short run, but are prone to stability? Um, you say this is the other, uh, uh, path, uh, and it is one of accommodation in which revolutionaries initiate far-reaching social change, but, but then tem- temper those or abandon most of them. And um, this is to avoid a counter-revolutionary reaction. And you say, without such conflict, revolutionary governments are less likely to forge the conditions for a durable authoritarian regime. Can, can you give us examples of this trajectory and uh, tell us how it works? Yeah, so so you have you know cases uh, like Guinea-Bissau and Algeria and Bolivia, which you know come to power with you know great dreams of of social revolution, but essentially get cold feet when they face opposition. You know, so not everybody's a Lenin or a Khomeini who sort of welcomes uh, bloody conflict, right? You know, most you know these tend to be actually much more rational in a kind of normal sense dictators who. Um, you know, the, the case I know the best is Guinea-Bissau, which is um, in which the ruling party came to power. There are sort of radical elements in the party that, you know, began to create um, a system of central planning, um, but quickly got cold feet and actually um, reversed course, you know, eliminated socialism as a kind of part of its ideology and, you know, very much tried to sort of... Uh, kind of seek support of the former Portuguese colonies and got support, you know, across the ideological spectrum in the 1970s from sort of right-wing Brazil to Saudi Arabia, um, to Portugal, to the United States. 
And so at some level, you know, that was, you know, they faced, um, you know, a much more, you know, kind of favorable environment to durability. But our argument in that case is that, you know, because they didn't face these existential threats, there was really no reason to sort of build a strong party or build strong, um, you know, military institutions. And as a result, they tended, they were quickly fell into instability. And there were multiple coup attempts. And eventually, you know, in the 1990s, the regime fell. Um, so there's kind of short-term rationality in the sense that they didn't fa- face these immediate existential threats, as you saw in the Hungarian Soviet Republic or in Cambodia, but you ended up creating kind of flabby authoritarian institutions that were vulnerable to elite defection and uh, instability. Right. Um, all right. So um, I think we've got the argument down now. Um, uh, tell us about your case selection. The book is divided into three main sections, uh, classical revolutions, national liberation regimes, and explaining variation in revolutionary outcomes. Um, can you tell us why you divided the book as such and what is in classical revolutions, uh, such as in Russia, China, and Mexico, that is different from national liberation regimes, such as uh, Vietnam, Algeria, and Ghana? So first of all, I want to sort of talk about case selection. I think, you know, Steve and I have always faced these problems in case selection because um, in a normal way in case selection and, and people who don't do, you know, quantitative research, you know, people like us who do qualitative work, tend to be sort of regionally focused. So, you know, you can take the former Soviet Union, which is, you know, 12 cases, and that's enough that you can sort of do all of them for, you know, you know the Southern Cone or something that you have a kind of a, you know, a kind of manageable number of cases that you kind of do, do the uni- all, you know, countries in a region, right? Um, but because, you know, Steve and I both do quite different regions, we're this was, you know, true in our last book, we're forced to basically do the entire globe because, <laughs> you know, you can't, you're not just going to do a project that's on Latin America and Eastern Europe. And that's, you know, bizarre, you know, case selection. So I think um, in both these cases, we started off by sort of, you know, having to do the whole globe. And so the way we did it in this project was, you know, quite systematic um, to start off with. We tried to identify all authoritarian regimes that were founded in, in, in revolutionary conflict. Um, and, you know, we spent a lot of effort doing this, partly because there was this fear that um, you kind of, you know, that you're kind of selecting on the dependent variable because you only know the durable cases, right? Because they survive and you hear about them. And so my graduate uh, assistant, um, Adam Casey, um, we went, you know, we really scraped the barrel trying to find any regimes that had been in power for at least even a day that might count as, um, as, uh, as kind of revolutionary regimes. And basically um, we were only able to find two that survived for less than a year. Uh, the Finnish deputation, which survived for about three, four weeks or five weeks in Finland in 1918. And then the Hungarian Soviet Republic in 1919. Um, and we literally went through every, non-democratic regime that's been in existence since 1900, which is about uh, 350 such regimes. So, I mean, I feel quite confident that we have really captured every revolutionary regime. And, you know, there aren't that many, there are 20. Um, And then your question, um, you know, then there's sort of different types of revolutions. To be honest, you know, I think this is not a kind of necessarily for us all that 
important distinction. It's mostly kind of chronological. I mean, the kind of classical revolutions are ones sort of in the first half of the century. And then the sort of, you know, national liberation regimes involve sort of cases that sort of emerged as social revolutions out of independent struggles like Angola, Mozambique, Vietnam, and the like. Um, and then we have a set of, of sort of uh, kind of post-Cold War, um, you know, revolutions, uh, Rwanda, Eritrea, and uh, Afghanistan. But that I think those distinctions, you know, are kind of looser, kind of less theoretically important and more kind of just chronological. Right. Um, I want to um, ask about... Um... I want to I want to place this book within the broader uh, works that you have published with uh, Stephen throughout the years. So I'm going to bring in some of the papers and some of the books that you've published uh, in the past uh, few years. And the first one is a 2012 article in Perspectives on Politics, where you study the cases of Kenya, Mozambique, uh, Zambia, and Zimbabwe. And in each of these cases, after 1990 there was an established single-party regime that faced a lot of pressure, including an economic crisis and a strong oppositional challenge. But there was variation in the outcomes. Uh, the ruling party in Kenya and Zambia imploded and eventually lost power, but the ones in Mozambique and Zimbabwe survived. And you say this is because the ruling parties in Kenya were organized almost exclusively around patronage, but the ones in Mozambique and Zimbabwe were liberation parties, and they had come to power through violent struggle. So even even 10 years ago, this idea was developed by you that when identities, norms, and organizational structures are formed during periods of sustained violent conflict, uh, these become a critical source of cohesion and durability for party-based um, authoritarian regimes. How do you think revolutionary, revolutionary regimes are different from regimes that emerge from civil war if the outcome is similar, both leading to resilient authoritarian regimes? Yeah, so I mean, it's a very similar argument there. In that paper, we really focused specifically on ruling parties per se. Um, and, but I think in the social revolutions um, you know, book, we really ex- expanded to include both the state and the sort of destruction of alternative centers of power. So it's kind of broadens the argument. Um, I mean, there, you know, um, it's interesting. We, in that paper, we include Zimbabwe, which really doesn't code as a, you know, social revolutionary regime. And they just, um, when, um, when, when ZANU PF came to power, they, you know, it was not at all kind of radical in the sense that we understand it. They kind of, you know, made an alliance with the British. They sort of did not sort of seek to sort of radically transform society. I mean, later they did in the, in the 2000s with sort of seizure of, of white farmers and the like, but that was, you know, long after the regime had been founded. You know, but you see sort of elements of uh, this kind of almost, Zimbabwe is almost kind of a hybrid case where you seek elements of a kind of revolutionary autocracy um, without, you know, the kind of efforts at radical social change. And when we were actually coding all revolutionary regimes, we tried to sort of code these kind of hybrid cases of, you know, regimes that emerge out of violent struggle, but, you know, don't engage in radical social transformation. And to be honest, there just weren't enough of them to to sort of, uh, you know, draw many conclusions. I mean, other examples, I guess, would be Uganda, um, the KMT in China in 1927. Um, You know, these are cases that emerge out of violence, um, but sort of you know, did not try to sort of radically change society. Um, but I guess, right. my, yeah. 
So my expectation would be that these would be, you know, my theoretical expectation is that these would be kind of stronger than your normal autocracy, but probably weaker than a kind of true revolutionary autocracy as, as we define it. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Right, right. Um, so to place this uh, in more of an international relations uh, framework, uh, you, uh, you conclude your previous book, uh, Competitive Authoritarianism, Hybrid Regimes After the Cold War. It was published in 2010 with a discussion of the future. And uh, you say the vast majority of remaining closed authoritarian regimes exist back then, where links to the West were low. Uh, and you say comp competitive authoritarian regimes democratized where they had connections to the West. But you say by the late 2000s, uh, the rise of China and the reincarnation of Russia expanded autocratic governments uh, and gave them room to maneuver vis-a-vis -vis, uh, Western powers. So the post-Cold War era was great for democratization, but the end of the post-Cold War era may create... Um, new possibilities for authoritarian rule. And this is what you write back in uh, 2010. Now, it's been 12 years since that book was published. What are the changes in the international system since then that you discuss in the current book, specifically with respect to Russia and China's uh, growing influence in the world? Well, you know, it's funny. I mean, I think, um, I mean, I think that uh, certainly our argument from 2010, which was that, you know, ties to the West or linkage to the West would sort of necessarily promote democracy, clearly no longer holds. I mean, you have a number of non-democracies, Hungary, Venezuela, Nicaragua, uh, Serbia, and potentially Poland that sort of, by our definition, are a high linkage that are sort of would not be considered democracies. And I think that's for obvious reasons, which is that you, so since the, you know, mid 2000s, you've had the sort of rise of obviously of China, um, and, um, and to a lesser extent, Russia, at least a kind of much more aggressive Russia. So there's no longer this kind of liberal hegemony that you had in the, you know, until the early 2000s, I think, um, globally. So you would expect, um, you know, sort of, um, in a sense, I mean, you know, it's interesting with our argument about linkage, because, you know, we, we, looking back, um, we made this kind of naive assumption that, you know, the influence only flowed one way from West to East, from democratic West to authoritarian East. But as we've seen with the case of Hungary now in a kind of multipolar world. So I think, you know, that the, the naive assumption actually held pretty much when you had a, you know, unipolar world of you know, liberal hegemony, you know, you know, influence really did flow mostly from democratic West to authoritarian East, but in a kind of multipolar world with an aggressive China and Russia, 
you also have flows the other way. Um, and so as a result, I think, you know, that's partly explains why you see kind of the increased, um, you know, crisis in democracy right now for reasons that sort of in some sense we kind of discussed in 2010. Um, you know, it's interesting, although, you know, one of the things we're writing about right now are sort of our third book is actually that we actually just signed a contract with Princeton to write is about the fact that despite this, I think democracy has been much more resilient than we might have expected. Um, and still today, for example, uh, about half of countries in the world are sort of democratic or very nearly so. So that despite all the obvious crisis of democracy in the United States and elsewhere, sort of at a kind of broader you know, world historical level, where you know, democracy is doing much better now, pretty much than it has at any time in world history, with the exception of like in the mid 2000s or something. Um, and so we're actually trying to explain why democracy is so resilient. Right. Um, as one of my last substantive questions, I want to ask about policy implications of your book, um, the current 2022. And I want to ask uh, um, about policy implications, but also uh, looking back at another work that you wrote together in 2013. Uh, and this is a paper in the Journal of Democracy called The Durability of Revolutionary Regimes. And in that, you and Stephen argue that the resilient authoritarian regimes of Cuba, Iran, North Korea, and Vietnam have posed some of the most enduring challenges to the foreign policy of the U.S. and its allies. And you said, based on your findings back then, hardline confrontational strategies which deepen polarization and thus reinforce revolutionary cohesion may be exactly what revolutionary and post-revolutionary regimes need to survive. So um, are the policy implications of your argument in this book uh, different from what you suggested back in 2013? Do you still think uh, it is sound foreign policy for the U.S. with regard to Cuba, Iran, um, and North Korea not to take a very hard confrontational uh, uh, approach? So that's a great question. Um, and it's funny because I, I did a podcast in which um, someone asked me, well, does this book show, um, they were just referring to the 2022 book, that we shouldn't be confrontational with Russia? <laughs> um, you know, and that was definitely not what I intended. Um, you know, I, as my other hat, as I'm a, you know, co-director of the Petroyalsic study, you know, program for the study of Ukraine, I think, you know, we need to do everything we can to defeat Russia militarily. Um, and I don't think, in a, you know, we had, we tried a combination with Russia in 2014 after they invaded Crimea, and that just led to the 2022 full-scale invasion. Um, I think it's, just, it's, just, it's hard to actually come, you know, I think I would probably temper my conclusions now. I mean, I think, um, you know, I think there's sort of, you know, there are sort of downsides to both. I mean, the, the downside to the confrontational approach, which I sort of which highlighted in 2013, was, you know, in a sense, by challenging Iran, you're feeding into the legitimating ideology of the, the Islamic Republic, which is, you know, very much anti-American, right? So you're just kind of heightening the cohesion of the IRI, right, of the Islamic Republic of Iran. Um, at the same time, you know, um, there's also a downside to accommodation, which is that you're sort of giving them the resources to survive. Um, and, you know, in some cases, as I think um, with Russia, I mean, sometimes you actually just need to militarily defeat them. I mean, 
Um, and so I, I actually probably would sort of step back from some kind of global sort of policy um, implications out of this, because I think it's just it's just complicated, um, um, which is not necessarily a very satisfying answer. Uh, the one thing I would say, you know, kind of from our book is that, you know, one of the things that we show is that these revolutionary regimes, you know, start off as very weak. And so the sort of uncomfortable conclusion we come to is that many of the sort of cold warriors, you know, as big as Brzezinski and others were probably right in the sense that if you were going to defeat the Islamic Republic of Iran, you, sh- you would have done it early when the regime was still kind of disoriented. And, you, you know, you know, in the case of the Taliban, um, in 1996, you know, might be an example, although, of course, they came to power again. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I just, I, I guess I think I would just say that there really aren't any kind of clear prescription, policy prescriptions that emerge out of it, except to sort of say that there's sort of, there are sort of upsides and downsides to both approaches. Um, yeah. Right. Since I have you in the hot seat, uh, I want to ask a question that might not be fair to ask. So I want you to, to, dwell on uh, two of the cases that you study in the book, Russia and Iran, uh, and I have personal vested interest. Uh, now, it's, it's, it's a, I, the reason I say it's unfair is because it's unfair to ask authors about ongoing political issues, but um, some of our non-political science listeners might want to read the book to understand contemporary politics better. Um, so Russia and Iran are dealing with very two, two very different challenges right now, uh, a humiliating defeat by the Russian army in parts of Ukraine. Um, people have different arguments about that and uh, mass protests in Iran. And you show in the book that Russia and Iran are ideal cases of revolutionary authoritarianism. How does the book help us understand the current events in Russia and Iran? Are we likely to see the armed forces in either of the countries break ranks with the regime leaders. So this idea of um, uh, elite cohesion that you say is one of the pillars of uh, um, durable authoritarianism. Um, Are we likely to see um, the military break ranks with either President Putin or the Supreme Leader Khamenei? So I think, well, first of all, I, I want to be clear, you know, Russia is not a revolutionary regime. I mean, in the sense that the Soviet Union did collapse in 1991. Um, I think the case, I'll just briefly mention Russia. I mean, you know, uh, the Communist Party, you know, collapsed in 1991. You know, the, the Soviet, the revolutionary regime survived for 74 years. Um, nonetheless, what's interesting about the case of Russia, which you also see to some extent in Nicaragua, it's a case of a kind of non-revolutionary regime. You know, sort of Putin did not come to power through violent struggle. <laughs> he won essentially the lottery by, you know, for, pre, the, Russia's first president, Boris Yeltsin, kind of picked him out of obscurity, put him put him in the presidency. You know, this is very much not a revolutionary regime. Nonetheless, it, it benefits from two legacies of 1917. The first is the destruction of any kind of civil society. Um, so that so in the 1990s, any kind of democratic opposition was very, very weak. Um, and I think, you know, Putin benefits from that. The second, he also benefits most obviously from the sort of, as I mentioned earlier, a very strong coercive apparatus, the security services, the KGB, which were created in 1917, which, you know, Putin emerged directly out of. And sort of he really benefits from this vast, you know, one of the world's most powerful security services in the world, um, which kind of very much allow him to maintain power. Um, quite easily and defeat opposition quite easily. So in that, in that sense, I think, but I think you don't, what you see in, in Russia is that, you know, the, you it is very weak cohesion. It doesn't have a party. It doesn't have any kind of cohesive party. And so, um, 
I think that, you know, the possibility of coup is very much on the table in a, in a way that I don't think it is the case in revolutionary regimes. Um, in, in Iran, I think, you know, that is obviously very much of a revolutionary autocracy. Um, and I, I kind of, um, I have a really hard time imagining the Islamic, uh, the, you know, the, the, the IRGC, the security services of Iran, you know, having a coup against Khamenei. That seems sort of completely implausible to me. Um, you know, the, 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 the revolutionary guard is so intimately connected in, in its core identity to, uh, clerical rule that, um, I mean, you know, maybe I'll be proved wrong, but I, you know, there's been no evidence that I've seen of the revolutionary guard challenging Khamenei, the Supreme leader in any way. Um, but there, of course, there are other ways the regime can fall. I mean, <laughs> um, as you saw with the Shah, I mean, I'm very much, even though go against, obviously go against my argument in my book, I'm very much rooting for these, you know, very brave um, protesters who um, have, you know, made Iran quite unstable. Um, and I think, you know, I, I think one of the things, you know, about Iran is, I mean, one of the arguments we make in the book that you, we haven't talked about is a, there's a kind of generational element that the, that the um, regime tends to be strongest when the uh, revolutionary generation is still around, that who experienced these kind of early periods of you know, of armed struggle for power. Um, and it's been 40 years you know, since 1979 or 40 plus years. And, you know, eventually nature is going to take its toll <laughs> and, you know, that revolutionary generation is going to die off. And I think in those cases you see, you know, that it's a, it doesn't mean that all these regimes fall, but it sort of creates a point of vulnerability and sort of, you know, tends to weaken cohesion. So I, I you know, in terms of um, medium term prospects, I mean, I think, you know, I, you know, I think there's, you know, greater likelihood of, of Iran, the, the revolutionary regime in Iran collapsing um, than some of the other cases. Um, so I'm still hold out hope for the. Yeah. Yeah. Agreement. I think we, yeah, we all do hope for that. Um, one last thing that we haven't talked about in, um, in this conversation is the role of ideology. So Harry um, Eckstein, in his 1965 article titled On the Etiology of Internal Wars, which I had to read for my comprehensive exams, um, he says, um, revolutions are preceded by a transfer of allegiance of a society's intellectuals and the developments by them of a new political myth. And you bring in ideology into your argument, which is perhaps missing from previous categorizations of authoritarian regimes. I'm thinking of Juan Linz and Barbara Geddes. Um, you say ideology decided whether revolutionary leaders take a radical or accommodationist path in building the state. So how, how is ideology working, um, if you want to continue with the case of Iran or bring in um, other cases from the book? So, you know, um, first of all, I, mean, I think we, I, we take ideology very seriously. It's, but it's also the case that not all of our revolutionary regimes are ideological. I mean, um, I think there's sort of broad agreement, for example, in the Mexican case, which is more of a mixed case that the that the the, the PRI was, you know, or what was the proto before the PRI was created um, in the 20s wasn't weren't especially ideological. Um, and so, you know, not all of our cases are ideological. Um, but I think, you know, in, in cases like Iran or Russia, um, you know, ideology works in two ways. First of all, in in all our, almost all of our cases, 
it basically encourages this sort of radical kind of, in quotes, irrational behavior of sort of attacking the most powerful forces around. So, you know, so when Khomeini comes to power and calls for revolution throughout the Persian Gulf and attacks the United States, the most powerful military in the world, you know, that's very much, you know, a function of, of his ideology, right? Um, and that sort of, you know, basically starts the revolutionary reactive sequence of, you know, and then sort of, you know, facilitates this sort of counter-revolutionary war. Um, and so I think that's the, the main role that ideology plays. Um, I, I also think it plays a, a, another role um, in both the Soviet Union and in Iran, which is to sort of encourage this sort of sense of existential threat and sort of life and death struggle. And so, um, you know, in the case of the Soviet Union, this, the concept of capitalist encirclement that I mentioned earlier, this idea that you're surrounded by capitalist powers and that you're therefore under existential threat, is very much a kind of merges out of Marxist ideology, right? This is an ideological concept. And similarly with Iran, you know, my, you know, you know, Iran is complicated. It's driven by oil rents and corruption, which is sort of more like other authoritarian regimes. But it's also, I think, um, driven by this sort of sense of, uh, you know, is, you know, desire for Islamic revolution, right? And, you know, that kind of encourages, you know, I think sort of promotes a kind of cohesion uh, within the regime. So, so I think that, you know, that ideology is both important in sort of starting the reactive sequence, but it also in kind of maintaining a kind of cohesion over the, the long term, over the decades, you know, after they come to power. Cool. All right. I have, I'm done with my substantive questions. I have more pragmatic questions. Uh, I want to ask about the Levitsky and Way phenomenon. Uh, what is the secret behind this uh, successful long-term collaboration? Do you develop the theory together and do the cases separately? I think you hinted to that. Do you divide the globe? Uh, so you take Eastern Europe and Stephen takes Latin America and then Luxembourg is a toss-up. Uh, do you do you meet in person? Um, how do you do this? So I think, you know, our, I think, you know, what's interesting, I've co-authored with other people and I think one of the things that makes this collaboration successful is that, um, first of all, we're very good friends and we're sort of best friends. Um, and uh, he was the best man at my wedding um, and the like. And so... Um, but also I think we sort of share sort of intellectual tastes. I mean, that we sort of tend to sort of see the world, you know, similarly and sort of, you know, agree on most conceptual and theoretical issues. I think it's really hard to co-author with someone who really just has a different idea of what counts as a good, you know, book. I mean, because there are many ideas, many ways to write a good book, right? And the sort of, and not always do people agree on this. And I think we sort of basically share, you know, you have to kind of share a, a sort of broad sort of epistemological, you know, vision uh, in both in sort of in, in, in theoretical vision to make it work. And I think that's partly kind of, we tend to agree on most things, which makes collaboration more successful. Um, at the same time, we have very different regional expertise. Um, and that was sort of, you know, where our first book, Competitive Authoritarianism, came out of the fact that sort of Steve obviously knows Peru quite well. I know Eastern Europe. And so it, it get, you know, the fact that we were able to come up with a concept that worked very well in both different parts of the world, I think gave us confidence that sort of these concepts could travel. Um, so I think that's part of it. Also, I have to say, I mean, one of the nice things about this kind of collaboration is, you know, um, oftentimes one of us will come up with an idea that the other will shoot down. <laughs> um, and so it's, it's sort of kind of, provides a kind of weeds out bad ideas or, you know, the, the other thing which often happens is, you know, 
one of us or I will come up with an idea and then the other one will challenge us. So, so it sort of, it kind of forces us to kind of, uh, kind of discipline in our thinking um, that you, you know, you don't always get from single author works where you have to wait till you get feedback and the like. So I think in that sense, it's a little bit more efficient. Um, I mean, I, you know, I think of a number of our concepts really emerge out of us arguing. I remember my, my younger brother once, I was at my parents' house and we were talking and I thought it was a normal conversation, but he thought we were like screaming at each other and said that sort of hated each other. <laughs> but in fact, we were just very excited sort of uh, kind of in this debate, which to me was intensely fun. And my, my younger brother was really worried because he thought that we were sort of, you know, kind of hating each other. Um, but, you know, it's just kind of our way of sort of, you know, kind of working these things out. Um in terms of how we distribute cases, I think, you know, obviously, you know, it's based on, first of all, on regional expertise, but, you know, it's just also random. So in this book on, you know, revolutionary regimes, you know, he just decided to take Vietnam. I took China um, and we just kind of divided it up that way. Um, so he got Algeria, you know, I got Guinea-Bissau. Um, <laughs> right. Um, so I'm, I'm trying to do a favor uh, to all the grad students and junior scholars out there who might be interested in building data sets, uh, myself included. Uh, so for the book, you build a data set of all the revolutionary authoritarian regimes. And for each case, you code whether there was an initial radical measure by the regime, which prompted a counterinsurgency. Now, instances of these are um, radical measures um, uh, like the introduction of the Sharia law in the case of the Taliban, uh, expropriation of American-owned properties like in Cuba, or air train attack on the Ethiopian border after secession, and Iran's uh, seizure of the U.S. embassy in 1979. Uh, in which of these areas did you find data lacking the most? Uh, if someone were to follow up on your work and build a data set, what kind of data do you think they should collect? So, so one thing I think... Um is true, it's just, I'll step back a little bit, is um, I always tell my graduate students that in some ways the most important part of your book, which I, which we draft, first of all, is the appendix. You know, um, I mean, you know, the writing and stuff, you know, so I, I've, you know, I, I think it's really important to sort of be, for, you know, old-fashioned science reasons for transparency, replicability, to have a clear appendix that sort of lays out your coding rules, which we have both in competitive authoritarianism and in um, revolution and dictatorship that we sort of have, you know, we, you want to know how we close social revolution and, you know, we have it sort of laid out. Um, and, um, and so that kind of allows, you know, ideally, I hope, <laughs> um, you know, people to sort of replicate uh, our data set and sort of, um, and then in the case of the, um, you know, the most recent book, we have um, a 150-page document that j justifies each case selection, all 355 cases. Um, and, you know, because I think it's really, you know, I think, you know, transparent, you know, Princeton wouldn't let us publish, obviously, that full thing, but it is online and anybody who wants it, I'm happy to send that document to them. And it has, like, I think something in the range of 450 cite citations and everything. And, um, so hopefully, you know, I think we sort of, um, I mean, in contrast to data sets, which, you know, you basically are trusting the coder. Um, and one of the things I, you know, I'll talk about data sets. I mean, one of my pet peeves is sort of expert codings because um, the VDEM approach, which I think um, it's a black box, right? So the expert says it's this way. You know, how can you ever disagree with it? So I'm hoping my codings, you can disagree with. You can look at the coding rules. You can look at the citations. You can, if there's a contradiction, the citations don't actually say 
what we claim it says, you can sort of disagree with our codings. Um, you know, you can, whereas you can't argue with VDAM because like you have no idea why the experts coded a country the particular way. Um, and so in that sense, I think it's unscientific. Um, and so I'm hoping that, you know, that, you know, I'm, I, well, you know, uh, I hope they don't come up with mistakes, but I think it's certainly possible if someone wanted to do that, to go through and use our sort of coding rules, look at our citations and sort of come to different conclusions. Um, so. Right. How could, how could someone extend the data? What is the, what is an area you thought, wow, there's really very little information here. Somebody could build a data set about, I don't know, expropriation of property or. Uh... Yeah. So I think, you know, one of the things we, um, we didn't, you know, we have, you know, I think uh, a memory serves me, you know, we have four different dimensions of, uh, of a kind of revolutionary machine, you know, come to power regularly, you know, through violence um, destruction of the, of, the, of the state and sort of efforts at radical social transformation. Um, we don't actually code all four criteria for all cases, basically to make it manageable. Um, you know, anytime uh, an authoritarian regime doesn't meet one of those criteria, it sort of falls out. So we don't have, I mean, it would be nice to have, for example, you know, if you, I mean, really fine. I'm sure you could do a lot with this if you sort of, you know, had all, regimes that came to power through violent struggle, all that, you know, tried radical social transformation, all that, you know, came to power through mass mobilization and the like, and sort of had codings for each of them. You could sort of do a whole bunch of things that would, would allow you, I think, to sort of isolate the impact of each of those sort of dimensions of a re revolutionary autocracy, which we don't do because it would have taken <laughs> a lot more money and a lot more time to really go through. So, so for example, the vast majority, I can just tell you, in our codings of 350 cases, the vast majority of cases we exclude because they come to power through military coup, you know, not from below. Um, and so we just leave out any of the other, you know, we don't know whether these 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 power, countries that came to power through, or regimes that came to power through coup also engaged in radical social transformation or not, um, or other stuff. So um, I think there's still a lot more to be done. Right. Now that's homework for anyone listening. Uh, so before we wrap up, tell us what you're working on now. You hinted to a new book with Princeton. Uh, what should we be looking forward to? So, um, you know, this is something that Steve and I wrote in 2015, a piece for Journal of Democracy saying that talking about the myth of democratic recession. Um, I think, you know, it's clear since 2015 that there's there's not a myth of democratic recession you know democracy is obviously very much in crisis we acknowledge that um nonetheless uh we if you look at sort of any sort of measure of democracy um it's also clear that uh you know democracies are enormously resilient in a lot of parts of the world or countries that you would not expect them to survive i mean take a you know so take a case like Mongolia, you know, which is relatively isolated, not very rich. You've had 30 years of, of relatively stable democracy. Ghana, another case, you know, relatively poor in which democracy has been quite robust for the last 20 plus years. Um, you know, Ukraine, Moldova, um, Romania. I mean, Romania, to remind some of your listeners, started off as this kind of hyper- Sultanistic regime was, you know, in 1989 was one of the only East European cases, post-communist cases to come to power through violence. You had, you know, intensely autocratic leaders. Um, so not very propitious 
starting conditions, and it's been a, a more or less stable democracy for the last three decades. So there is a in, in the you know so our, the title of our book is how democracies survive, you know uh, the the uh, resilience of pluralism in an age of backsliding. So the idea the question is why it is despite the sort of shifts in global power, despite you know the rise of you know autocratic president in the United States under Trump, despite you know the internet and you know inequality, nonetheless democracy and pluralism is is so resilient today. So. I actually don't really know the answer, <laughs> um, but that's you know what we're going to do a book on. Interesting. That's something to look forward to. We can have this conversation in a few yeah. years once the book is out. Um, all right. Uh, this conversation has been very exciting and informative, and I wish I could keep asking you more questions, but I want to give our listeners the chance to read the book and find the answer to their questions. So uh, thank you, Lucan, for being with us today. Thank you so much. It was really fun. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.